Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. Good morning, everyone. Okay, much, much better. Thank you. Great. Um, my joy to be here with you. My joy to bring you God's Word. Um, unfortunately, uh, we've got a few sniffles at home, so uh, my wife and kids are not with us. Um, but, and Jensen asked if I would wave so that he sees me on the computer at home. So, there you go, Jay. Alright, well, let me say a brief prayer, and then we'll dive into this. Lord, help me to preach your word accurately, and would you help us to see you clearly, and in a way that transforms us, and encourages us, fills us with awe and amazement. Amen. Okay, several of you may have heard the quote from... Theologian A.W. Tozer, and uh, I think I've used it in my teaching quite a bit as well. But that quote, one of well, one of his famous quotes, is that the most important thing about us is what comes to mind when we think about God. What comes to mind when we think about God, and it's a very practical, practical question. Uh, it's a question that changes our, our perspective um, more than any other. So for example, in your mind, when you think of God, is He nice but not very serious about sin? Is He powerful but far off and uninterested? Is God a God who has a position and title but Honestly, there's really not that much about him that you find impressive and moving. He can do some things, he knows some things, but not all that much, really. Nothing that really grips you. When you think of God, does he love you? Do you feel that he can love you? Our view of God needs to be accurate. We certainly can't just pick and choose who we want God to be. Nothing brings more perspective for life than an accurate, biblical picture of God. We need to look to the scriptures themselves, of course, for an accurate view of God. Is God really worthy of worship? Is He really worthy of trust? Is he really worth living for? The answer to all these questions and more comes down to who he really is. Who is he? His nature, his abilities, his character, his promises, 
his acts. There are several points in the Bible where God reveals more of himself to people. And when he does so, often it seems that his goal is to motivate and strengthen the person for the mission before them and the knowledge of who they are serving and knowing not just his worthiness but his ability to go with them and empower them for what he's calling them to. And that certainly seems to be the case in Isaiah chapter 6 when Isaiah the prophet has a vision of God as he's called into ministry. In this vision, God tells him that he's sending him to preach to people who are not going to believe him and who are going to be antagonistic towards him. And the situation is going to get worse and worse for years. God calls him to a very difficult ministry, a very discouraging mission. And Isaiah needed to know that who he's doing it for. And Isaiah needed to know God's ability to help him with this mission he was giving him. And this accurate view of God would make all the difference for Isaiah. To see who God really is, is life-changing. And so that's what we want to do today. We want to look at this vision. We want to see what Isaiah saw of God. And we want God to change us as we do. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah chapter 6, please. I'm going to read the whole passage together, Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 8. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Send me. Now we're going to go through quite a few points today, um, seven exactly, but don't be too worried about that. We'll go through a lot of them quite quickly. What does this vision reveal to us about our God? Firstly, 
God rules. God rules. In verse 1, Isaiah tells us that King Uzziah has died. Uzziah ruled over Judah for 52 years. He was a successful, prosperous king who kept the nation secure. And then he broke God's law by stepping into the role of priest, which a king was never supposed to do. God punished him, and a little bit later, he died. And all of this coincides with the nation of Judah growing increasingly rebellious against God, and the neighboring nation of Assyria growing stronger and stronger and conquering more and more surrounding nations. Uzziah had been a king that kept Judah safe and secure. What would they do now? Who would defend them against Assyria? Who would they look to move forward? In verse 5, Isaiah says, My eyes have seen the king. And in verse 1, he describes God as seated on a throne, high and exalted. King Uzziah may no longer have been on his throne, but the Lord God is still on his throne. He is king. He rules and he reigns. Things were looking bad for Judah. And crazy enough, as God goes on to tell Isaiah in the rest of chapter 8, things are going to get a lot worse. But Isaiah is reminded here at the beginning of his commissioning as a prophet that through it all, God still rules and reigns. He is still on his throne. Everything is still under his control and in his plan. He is king. Secondly, God is splendid. God is splendid. It seems that what happened here is that Isaiah went into the temple to pray. And then as he's praying, he gets this vision. He looks up, and it's as if the temple no longer has a roof. And high above him is this huge, majestic throne. And coming down from the throne is a royal robe that is so long that he describes it as filling the temple. Actually, if we're going to be more technical, he's actually talking about just the train of the robe or the hem, the edge of the robe. The edge of the robe is so vast and expansive that just as he looks around the temple, it, it, it feels like, like the, the edge of his robe is just everywhere, filling the whole space. One commentator made the point that when we see visions of God in Scripture, they tend to just describe one or two details because, understandably, words are just not enough to describe what's really being seen. And often the person describing the vision just focuses on one thing that particularly caught their attention, that, that particularly um, that, 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 that was just particularly vivid for them, and they just do their best to describe that one thing. This throne is spectacular and grand. And all that is summed up as Isaiah points to this one detail of the royal robe that comes down from this high and exalted throne and just goes on and on and fills the whole temple. 
Thirdly, God is worshipped constantly. God is worshipped constantly. A special class of angels is seen here, hovering around God. Some think that these angels are only described here in the Bible. Certainly it's only here in the Bible that they are called seraphs or seraphim. But others think they are described in visions of God that we see in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Revelation. And I, uh, I, I agree with that. That's my understanding. In each of these passages, these angels appear doing exactly what they're doing here. In the presence of God, serving Him, and singing His praises without end. You notice also in this passage the way these angels are singing and praising God. It's antiphonal, which means basically that they're calling to each other. They're, they're singing back and forth, building on each other. And then praising God by telling each other, ultimate, um, they're praising God by telling one another of His awesomeness. One says God is holy, and another adds to it. He's holy, holy. And then another adds to it. He's holy, holy, holy. We'll look more at that in a moment. I don't know if the singing of these angels would have been described as beautiful. The passage doesn't say. But it is very, very clear that the singing was powerful. Very powerful. Verse 4 tells us, At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Number 4. God has hosts of angels under His command. Take note of one of the titles the seraphim used for God in verse 3. Your particular Bible translation might say they're God Almighty, or it might translate it more literally as Lord of Hosts. And basically, the Bible tells us of God's absolute power many times and in many ways. But here, this particular title is specifically referring to one of the ways God's power and might is expressed through his command of hosts, thousands and thousands of angels, armies of angels. Number five, God is holy, holy, holy. I said we would get back to this, to what the seraphim sing back and forth to each other about God. In Hebrew, if you want to emphasize something, you say it twice. So to talk about pure gold, you would basically talk of gold gold. Okay. God is not just holy, nor is he simply holy holy. He is holy, holy, holy. There's a couple of different overlapping uses for the word holy in the Bible. There's the idea of separateness from sin, the fact that God is altogether pure and righteous, that He's completely without even a hint of sin. And there's also the idea of separateness from absolutely everything else. God is utterly one of a kind, separate and unique. Who else is eternal and self-existent? Who else is all-powerful? Who 
Who else knows everything? Who else is so wise? Who else has created everything? Etc., etc. There is none like him. Not even close. One pastor says that holiness, this idea of holiness, almost becomes in a way of just speaking about God's godness. Because it's a trait that only truly belongs to him. It's the awe-inspiring majesty of the godness of God. One thing we notice throughout the Bible with God's holiness is that it is both beautiful and terrifying. It moves people and angels and even demons to take God very, very seriously. And when people find themselves in the presence of God and His holiness, it hits them and they realize that their sin is a big, big problem. And that's exactly what we see here. In verse 5, Isaiah says, Woe to me! I am ruined! I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty! I am sinful, and I'm in the presence of a holy God! And he's terrified, and he assumes it's death for him. We'll look at these verses some more in a little bit. Remember what God told Moses in in Exodus 33 when Moses asked to see his glory? God told him, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. But God very kindly came up with a plan to semi-answer Moses' request. Here's what he says to him. He says, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft, basically a, like a groove in the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back. But my face must not be seen. You can see my back, Moses, but not my face. No one may see me and live. But what about these angels, the seraphim? They're sinless. They're not sinful human beings. And they seem to have been specifically created to live in the very presence of God. Every time we see them in the Bible, they're they're hovering around His throne and praising Him. Well, even they cover their face. Through their wings, they cover their face. And I'm not 100% sure why Two of their wings cover their feet. But it definitely makes me think of passages in the Bible where people had to remove their shoes because they were on holy ground. Some sort of symbolism there about reverence. In the hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, we sing, No angels in the sky can fully bear that sight. But downward bends their burning eye, that mystery is so bright. It's like these angels long, long to look at, at God fully, but they can't. They just can't bear it. They have to shield their eyes with their wings. This vision of God changed Isaiah. He took it with him through the rest of his life. And it was this in particular, the holiness of God, that struck him. 
what we see through the book of Isaiah is Isaiah using a term that's almost unique to him in the Bible again and again. You know what he refers to God as? Most often, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. Number six. God's accomplishments are vast and glorious. One theologian says that glory is basically God's holiness on display. Okay? So God is holy, and how do we know He's holy? Through His glory. Sometimes in the Bible we will see God's glory spoken of as an incredible, bright, inapproachable light. But it's not only bright light that reveals to us God's amazing character and abilities. In verse 3, the seraphim sing that the whole earth is full of His glory. Think of passages like Romans 1 verse 20. It says this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Creation is so beautiful, so creative, so well designed, with all the parts fitting together so well, so wisely, that God says it makes His existence, His power, and His Godness clear. No one is without excuse. Think of the last few chapters of Job where God points to the ocean waves, to lightning, to the speed of ostriches and the power of horses, to the way lions hunt and eagles fly and see their prey from up high. God points to these things and He asks Job, Are you like me? Can you make these things? Can you keep this world operating as it should? And the answer, of course, is no. Not even close. We are surrounded by miracles that have become normal to us. Beautiful music that not only exists, but that we also have the capacity, thanks to our amazing ears, to enjoy. Music that relaxes us. Music that makes us want to dance. Flavors. So many different flavors found in a huge variety of fruits and leaves and roots, milk and eggs and meat from all sorts of animals that, we can, that we've learned and have the know-how to cook and prepare in so many different ways. And then again, our tongues are actually able to taste and enjoy. Flowers, so many different shapes and sizes and colors, sunsets and sunrises every day. In fact, I realized this recently, every moment. You realize somewhere in the world right now the sun is setting. Somewhere in the world right now the sun is rising. And God is just painting the sky with beautiful color. Waves forming and crashing onto beaches all around the world. Mountains and kloofs and waterfalls. Massive elephants. Whales bigger than buses. Agile monkeys jumping through trees, soaring albatrosses and eagles, eggs 
that hatch into baby birds, tadpoles that become frogs, caterpillars that become beautiful butterflies, seeds that grow into massive trees. Some of you may have noticed at the moment there's a, um, if you drive along some of these freeways and you, 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 you pass an area maybe where there's a lot of, of long grass, you might see these, these black birds flying with a crazy long tail, okay? Crazy long tail. And you'll see them at this time of year and you won't see them in the winter. And the reason is not because they're not there in the winter. It's because that same bird is a dull, ordinary, little brown bird with a short tail that just would never catch your attention in the winter. But every year, God transforms the males of that bird into this striking black bird with this crazy tail, flies and shows off to all the ladies. Every year. Amazing. And then there's the human experience. Love, relationships, marriage, family, friendship. All these things are gifts from God. All are so precious. All are so beautiful. God made it all. There is so much that is amazing in this world. So much that screams that God is real and He is creative and He is beautiful and He is powerful and He is wise and He is good and He is totally, completely, utterly in a category all of His own. There is none like Him. The earth is full of His glory. Number seven, God graciously saves and commissions sinners. As holy as He is, as much as He hates sin, God saves sinners. Woe to me, Isaiah cried, I am ruined. But God didn't leave him there, sinful, lost, and hopeless, doomed for judgment. No, he sent a seraphim to him with a call from the altar, a call that cauterized and cleansed his lips, and a call that surely carried with it the symbolism of the altar it was taken from. What did the sacrificial system point us to all the way through the Old Testament? We are sinners who can't do anything to save ourselves. We're in desperate need of a Savior. We need God to make a way. God takes away Isaiah's guilt, tones for his sin, and then he takes things a step further. He commissions him to serve him. This sinner, this undeserving sinner, he commissions him to serve him. Verse 8 says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. God gives Isaiah a job to do as his messenger and prophet. Now, why is it that Isaiah specifically referred to himself as a man of unclean lips? And why is it that his lips, what the angel focuses on, burning, cauterizing with the hot, with the hot coal? I think there's at least two reasons. 
First of all, the Bible tells us that out of the mouth the heart speaks. Right? We see that again and again. Our speech reveals our sinfulness. Secondly, because Isaiah has been called to be a prophet, there seems to be an especially powerful symbolism in realizing that he desperately needs God's grace, even in the area of gifting with which you will serve God. He's going to be someone who speaks for God, but even his lips are unclean. If God doesn't purge him, if God doesn't take away his sin, if God doesn't take away his guilt, he cannot serve God. He has nothing to offer. He's bringing nothing to the table. We are all utterly sinful throughout Even the things we might be most tempted to be proud of, the gifts we might look to and boast of, are broken and selfish. And yet this holy God, this holy, holy God, saves us and uses us. Amazing. In conclusion, we've looked at the vision Isaiah had of God and we've seen God rules God is splendid. God is worshipped constantly. God has hosts of angels under his command. God is holy, holy, holy. God's accomplishments are vast and glorious. And God graciously saves and commissions sinners. These truths about God should leave us in awe and wonder at who God is and at how much grace he has shown us. But I want to draw your attention now to one more truth that I believe makes all these truths even more amazing. That helps drive home even more of just how gracious this amazing, holy, glorious God has been to us. This vision of God is a vision of Jesus. This vision of God is a vision of Jesus. In John 12, verse 41, John quotes from Isaiah 6 and then says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. That's Jesus' glory. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. And brothers and sisters, the incarnation is more amazing when we realize who became man for us and what he gave up for us. When you think about Christmas, when you think about the Incarnation, remember this vision of God. God had to leave the splendor of his throne room and the constant service and praise of the seraphim in order to become a baby for us. The creator of legs would learn to walk. The creator of the tongue would learn to talk. The one with hosts of angels under his command would submit himself to the authority of a young carpenter and his wife, obeying them as his parents. (coughs) And he lived 33 years on this earth as man, truly man. One of my professors uh, in Bible college would say, 
don't believe in a Clark Kent Christology. And what he means by that is, so Clark Kent's a Superman, for those of you who, who, who don't know. Um, and the thing with Superman, right, is that Superman looks like a man, but he's not a man, right? You punch Superman and it doesn't really hurt. But that is not the way we should think of Jesus' humanity. Jesus felt hunger. Jesus got exhausted. Jesus really lived as one of his creation. Those 33 years on earth include times of mocking, times of rejection, genuine temptation, betrayal from those close to him, whipping, ridiculing, and the most painful and shameful of deaths. Why? For sinners like you and me. If we think about this, our head should spin in awe and amazement. Our hearts should ache and feel like they're going to burst out of our chests. What does this amazing truth leave with us? Most importantly, this amazing, holy, glorious God loves His people. For those of you who doubt God's love, and I don't think this is a widespread problem on some level, or rather for, for many of us, let me ask you, Is it a small thing that Yahweh of hosts became a baby? Is it a small thing that the creator of all things became part of his creation? Is it a small thing that the Holy One of Israel lived among sinners so that he could take on their sin for them? These are questions to ask yourself when you doubt his love. Because if he didn't love you, why, why would he ever do this? God became man. Don't doubt his love. Don't doubt his grace. God is so unbelievably for his people. If you're a Christian, God is always and forever for you. Philippians 2. Have this mindset among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being born in the likeness of man. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 1 Timothy 1.15 Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Amen. God, please help us 
to believe these truths on a deeper and deeper level. We thank you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for loving us even though we do not deserve it, God. And thank you that nothing can separate us from your love for us in Christ Jesus. And I pray that in light of that, we will be able to, to live our Christian lives out in full confidence that you have paid the whole price for us and nothing will ever change that. And you've brought us into relationship with you and nothing will ever change that. And you are for us. And even in the darkest of situations, you can be trusted. Yes, because you're all-powerful and all-wise, but also because you love us beyond what we could ever possibly imagine. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for the truth of Emmanuel, God with us.